You're listening to the Gladstone's Land podcast in association with the National Trust for Scotland. Series 2, Episode 1, Contagion, Commodity and Crime, Death in Edinburgh. Welcome to the Gladstone's Land podcast. Here we are for a very exciting second series. I'm Kate, you might remember me from the previous series. Uh, replacing Thomas for the second series is Holly, who Hello. also might remember. <laughs> you might remember me, I was a guest a couple of times. And yes, I'm taking over from Thomas, who will be back mm-hmm. to talk to us on the podcast again We this can't do series. a whole series without him. No. And Holly has been looking up her religious facts, is that that yes. true? Yes, yeah. I don't want our religious fact to <laughs> to leave the podcast with Thomas gone. Yeah, Tom, Thomas did make a few cracks about I get quite fashion orientated. <laughs> Holly is a fashion historian and so am I, so I think he had some concerns. So we will be continuing to offer some religious facts and keeping you know yes. the spirit of Thomas alive in our podcast. And I've made a point to learn other facts other than fashion. <laughs> other than fashion. We'll be, we'll be uh, branching into other areas, particularly of social history. Right. Which leads me on to today's topic. We have just come off the back of Halloween and we had a rather exciting tour which focused on death in Edinburgh and the different ways that death affected the city and some of the sort of the most prominent means by which they dealt with death. So I would like to introduce you to Cosy Carter, who is one of our staff members. I'll let you explain a bit more about who you are, Cosy. Hello. Uh, yeah, I'm Cosy. I work here. I've worked here for about four or so months now. I come from a background in sociology, which is interesting when you're trying to talk about social history. But I have developed a very keen interest in Edinburgh, and that's sort of my area of expertise as such. And I'm currently studying a master's degree in architectural conservation. So it all sort of ties in quite nicely. I should also add that Cosy and I went to university, so we all both have appalling stories about the other one. Maybe in a later episode. <laughs> yeah, maybe not this one. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll save that for another time. Um, I look forward to it. I was also doing my PhD at the time, so I was far too sensible to do anything. <laughs> okay, Kate. <laughs> uh, so, moving on from that. on. <laughs> Let's start by just having maybe a little bit of an overview, Cosy, about how death in a very broad sense has affected the city. Well, Edinburgh has obviously been around for an awful long time and it is known nowadays as very much a hub of sort of medical science and medical development and scientific discovery amongst a variety of other fields. But what's very interesting is if you trace back Edinburgh's medical history and plot that against its social history, it becomes very evident that one directly impacts the other. So when medicine has changed or something has happened that has directly impacted medical science in Edinburgh, you can quite often see quite big social changes, whether they be direct or sort of a catalyst for other things to happen. So when we did this tour, I wanted to look at very much sort of the highlights of this history and where medical points of interest or even just healthcare points of interest have impacted the constitutional and political world and social world that is Edinburgh. So the tour wasn't quite 
so highbrow all the way through. <laughs> obviously, this had this this overarching theme, but actually, the th- the three of us that are sitting around the microphone all delivered it mm. over the ten days. Holly looked particularly excellent in her costume. Thank you. Um, Lent to me by Kate. <laughs> had a pearl necklace and everything. Mm-hmm. That is fancy. I was wearing my scarf as a shawl. <laughs> it was very cold. It's very cold in the house. It's very probably. very chilly. We were all getting our thermals out. So there was this overarching theme that that we had running throughout this tour, looking at the way that death impacted later changes in the city. But obviously it wasn't just that. This was a Halloween tour. We had to have a few slightly gory, slightly unpleasant stories in there. So I think the the two that that jump out at me, and certainly the two I enjoyed most, was a plague, Mm -hmm. and talking about how the plague affected Edinburgh, and body snatchers, and talking about Burke and Hare and their dealings with death. And, and everything that led up to that. Should we start with the plague? Dive in? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we looked predominantly at the 1645 plague here in Edinburgh. What's probably more accurate to say is the 1640s plague here in Edinburgh because it, we don't know when exactly it began or ended because that's the most famous one. It had a massively detrimental impact on the city and led probably in part, it's fair to say, to the social changes that came with the 18th century. So at the beginning of the 1700s, uh, you got the Act of Union. uh, And that essentially came about because Scotland and Edinburgh was in a really, really bad place. They had lost an awful lot of their population to the plague in in the 1640s. I believe that Edinburgh lost anywhere between a third and half of its population. So we're looking at sort of 10,000 to 15,000 people in a population of 30,000. So it really, really did hammer the city for want of a better Mm -hmm. phrase. But what's quite interesting is if you kind of look back in Scottish history this was the final of up to I think 11 outbreaks that would happened in a 300 year span and it is directly you can directly sort of trace the development of cities with how they were impacted by the plague so it's believed that one of the reasons places like maybe Perth or Stirling didn't grow in the same way that Edinburgh did was because they were hit earlier on in time by the plague and they lost so much of their population that they just didn't have the ability to bounce back in the way that Edinburgh did after specific well, especially after the 1640s plague but the the plague came in five different forms across Europe and Scotland was most badly hit by two, one being the pneumonic plague, which was the airborne version of this disease, and the bubonic plague, which is a much more, obviously, famous version. But interestingly, the pneumonic plague was a much nastier version and actually did a lot better in Scotland, possibly because it's so cold here. This scans with outbreaks in the rest of Europe as... Overall, it's believed that Europe lost a third of its population to the plague, apart from Norway, which lost two thirds of its population, which very potentially could be down to the fact that the pneumonic plague, which was the really, really nasty strain of the disease, thrived in colder climates. That's really interesting. My favourite bit of this whole bit, I I enjoyed, you know, some of the gory bubonic stuff, but was actually the story of the plague doctor's Mm. outfit. We have this really famous idea of what a plague doctor looks like but I didn't realise it had been invented by a Frenchman or really where it had come from. I always think the plague doctor outfit's a really interesting one and I know that you and I had a Kate and I had a conversation about this where I made the statement that the plague doctor outfit had been very vilified over time and mm-hmm. and I think it's probably fair to say that you can see examples in popular culture of this being a very scary a very sort of almost demonic feature especially that raven beak shaped mask obviously nowadays we would associate that with death but but the raven was actually a sign of good luck or like it was a motif of good luck which is where the 
the idea of that that raven mask comes from but the outfit itself is by no means of scottish origin it actually comes from uh, yes a french doctor as you said a doctor called charles delorme and was designed just to protect anyone in a in a disease ridden area to be protected from what essentially spread the disease which in scotland i don't know if it, if this is a, the true throughout europe but was spread by these things called miasmas which were just bad smells or evil essentially evil spirits and the whole principle of the outfit the, the long leather cloak the, the hood the gloves the boots and that iconic raven beak shaped mask was that it was all designed to stop the miasmas from touching the body or getting into the body disrupting the humors which was this base medical theory and causing death so this was basically the, the idea of miasmas before they understood germ theory or mm. anything like that. It was how they thought disease spread yes, through miasmas. Completely. And again, you can see the you can see the logic in it because it was things that smelt bad. So they knew that if they <laughs> ate rotten fruit, it was probably gonna make them ill. They knew that the Nor Loch, which was the big body of water to the north of Edinburgh, uh, smelt... Which we've talked about in previous episodes. <laughs> there you go. You're already friends with that swampy goodness. Um, yeah, the, the Norloch smelt particularly bad and they knew that there was bodies in it and feces and waste. So it was just, it was a weirdly accurate assumption that if it smelt bad, it was probably quite bad. There was things that totally contradicted that, which is that they b believe in bathing. And one study I read suggested that that was because they believed that hot water and heat would, again, disrupt the humours in the body. So as much as they knew that if fruit smelled bad, it was probably bad, they seemed to not care an inch for actual hygiene. <laughs> so you've got this theory of miasmas mm. causing this design of this, this big long coat and, and the, the beak-shaped yes. beak mask and things. But looking at sort of modern germ theory, it may have actually protected people. Yeah, absolutely. And this ties in nicely to the plague doctors you actually get in Edinburgh because these wonderful scary outfits with the cloak and the mask they did protect people because the leather garments and such were thick enough that any fleas or bugs carrying a disease couldn't bite through them so in the case of the bubonic plague which was carried by fleas it stopped it just stopped at that entering the bloodstream and unbelievably i don't know the science behind this but the mask that was so famous and stuffed full of these nice smelling herbs like lavender or broom it acted like a very rudimentary gas mask which meant that they had absolutely no idea what they were doing it was totally clueless but they were not breathing in anywhere near the sort of the quantity of these germs as they possibly could have done if they had just gone in without any protection which is actually why when you look at the plague doctors of edinburgh of which there were actually only two one of whom had the outfit and one of whom didn't the one who didn't have the outfit died quite quickly and the one who did have the outfit survived for about 25 years after the end of the plague. And he's quite an interesting character in himself. He is. He? George Ray, he's a very interesting doctor, an Edinburgh doctor or surgeon. He lost his entire family to it, but he was, he did help to save a lot of people's lives and as I said, survived long after the end of the plague. Probably most tragically, he never actually was paid what he was owed, though, because Edinburgh City Council, seeing that their doctors were dying off at a rate of knots, decided that they were going to pay them an extraordinarily high amount. So George Ray went into the job at 100 Scots pounds a month, which was an awful lot of money. Uh, and there is records that show sort of 20 years after the end of the disease, him writing to the City Council to kind of re request his payment. He never got, because the disease bankrupt the city and the following years in Scotland were not 
the wealthiest at all. So not only did it decimate the population, it actually bankrupted the city from how they were dealing yeah. with it. Yes, bankrupt is probably a little extreme, okay. but it certainly did. Yeah, it had <laughs> a lot of flair for drama. Yes, no. <laughs> You've met me. <laughs> no, no, but no, it's, it is fair to say that it, it had a substantial financial and social and political impact on the city, no doubt. Yeah. And you say helped a lot of people. One of the things we touched on in the tour was debunking an Edinburgh myth about the plague, wasn't it? Yes, we did debunk this myth. <laughs> uh, yeah, there is a very famous myth in Edinburgh that plague victims were bricked up inside their houses and left to die. And that's in part due to the slightly strange sort of topographical form of Edinburgh being that it runs down a hill. Yeah. Said the word topographical. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> word of the week. That's it. <laughs> Sorry, I've derailed I um, So yes, the, the strange topographical features of Edinburgh in that it's built on a hillside and over time the f- basically ground level has just been raised in Edinburgh which means that more often than not you will find that buildings have basements or hidden doorways that all seem to be underground but actually aren't it's just that the floor level has risen up over time but somehow that has manifested itself in that Edinburgh City Council went well if you've got the plague I'm going to brick you up inside your house and leave you to die it is not the case it's a huge waste of a, a house and it's also just very unkind it's not a nice thing to do but it did put very, very strict quarantine measures on houses, which is possibly where this rumour originates from. There was a system whereupon you had to fly a white rag outside of your house just to declare that you had the disease. And that was supposed to put people at less risk and to allow people within their houses to get the attention they needed, whether that be from the plague doctor or from getting sort of supplies delivered from Edinburgh City Council. However, these quarantine measures were extraordinarily strict and if anyone broke them, the punishment was death. You were executed, which especially in the case of families and parents actually ended in some pretty tragic stories where parents tried to protect their children from the plague doctor and the horrors that he brought along with him from this treatment and in, in the end resulted in their execution. So you touched on it there and we, we talked about it earlier as well, was the plague doctor's treatment was quite effective, but what was he actually doing and, and why were there horrors attached to that? Yes, <laughs> there is no like definite record of who how many people survived the plague who were treated by the plague doctor, but we do know that they they worked out very basically that if they managed to prevent the spread of the disease into the bloodstream, then it would lessen your chances of dying. So this is specifically bubonic plague? Well, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the bubonic plague, they kind of, that was a write-off. You've got to go. You no, 95% chances of dying, you, you had your will signed by the end of the day. But the bubonic plague specifically actually lasted a little bit longer the boils that are iconic of the bubonic plague that would form on the lymphatic system could actually stay around for about a week before deteriorating so quickly that you died and the reason that you would deteriorate is because when these boils grew big enough they would burst inwards which would release a huge amount of toxins into your bloodstream meaning that you would actually get septicemia at which point it actually becomes the septic plague which is the third iteration but it's much easier just to call it the bubonic plague but it would become the septic plague and that's what would kill you very very fast there was no treatment for that so they worked out that what they could do is and this is where it gets lovely and gory they could, <laughs> it is a halloween time. it is uh, they could slice open these boils and drain any of the material that was in there so all that infected fluid all that toxic stuff and then they would clean the wound salt water or vinegar anything that they essentially had available and then they could seal it again 
and they would seal it with a red hot poker which would disinfect the wound and stop it reopening not a very pleasant experience and it was extraordinarily painful there was no painkillers some people probably did die of shock in the process again there's no official record of this but we can assume that there were most people were of a fairly weak constitution by this point they weren't they weren't doing so well but because they managed to prevent impact on the on the internal system you actually had a much higher chance of recovering from it because it didn't get a, a chance to get into your bloodstream you can still get the the plague today the bubonic plague is still very active uh, in certain places i had a conversation with someone after one of the tours actually who said that they had had quite a few outbreaks in new mexico last year but easily treatable now. Yeah. it's easily treatable as long as you catch it before it gets to that point and then quite often the problem is of course nowadays especially with the pneumonic plague is that if you get an outbreak of it you might just think oh, i've just got a cold it's the flu and often by the time you realize that it's the plague it is too late well one other stream we discovered of the plague was the duck plague wasn't it? Oh I yes. Something <laughs> about the duck. Oh, I forgot about this. Yeah. Oh, that was uh, the day that you and I had. Yes. yes. So we basically—I can't remember the, the exact science of it. Basically, ducks can get the plague. It's—it's it's a similar. Yeah. yeah. It's a similar bacteria. It's not the same bacteria, but it essentially causes them. It, it's almost like it got a rabies effect. Yeah. Isn't it? It's it, like it causes a disorientation. I mean, it's a duck, so I don't know how you can tell this, <laughs> but it's. <laughs> disorientation they can't they can't swim they can't walk properly they go blind i think mm. i remember saying and then eventually yeah it, it kills I have them. some questions about how the <laughs> pair of you got onto the duck play and the magician never well. reveals the secrets <laughs> <laughs> well there we go so the other bit of the tour that was, was some good storytelling was quite dramatic was the body snatching mm-hmm. and talking about the resurrection men and the growth of the medical school and what I didn't realise is we'll come we'll come to Birkenhair which I'm sure most <laughs> of you will have heard of oh that old uh, but there was actually significant activity before Birkenhair and mm. not just in terms of people digging up bodies but actually murders are happening yeah. before yeah. that so they do you were... want to give us maybe a bit of context and tell us about those those women <laughs> that were pioneering the world absolutely so i mean you can go back as far as sort of king henry VIII when you're looking at things like body snatching and where it comes from and it essentially the business of it grew from the lack of provision to medical schools of corpses because medical professionals started to realize that if you were going to if you're going to look after human beings, it's probably quite good to know what the inside of a human being looks like and to see how different diseases affected the body. In 1752, you get the first proper provision for this and it it allows the body of any executed criminal to be used for dissection purposes. However, there really wasn't enough bodies to go around. Execution was becoming a lot less common and Mm. the medical industry, especially in Edinburgh, was really, really taking off. And this is where you start, as Kay mentioned, you start to get the building of the very illegal, as opposed to just the slightly illegal act of murdering people in order to sell their bodies on. And the first example of this, or at least one of the most outstanding examples of this, actually, is the case of two women who were called Helen Torrance and Jean Waldy. And that was in 1752. And they were two women who promised the body of a child to a surgeon. And they failed to obtain that body and ended up kidnapping and murdering an eight-year-old boy called John Dallas and selling his body to the medical school. His family reported him missing, they got caught and they were capitally punished for it. But it means that when 70 years later Burke and Hare came along, this very dark business of murdering someone was not a novel action. I read a bit about 
their trial actually, Helen mm. Torrance and Jean Waldy. And neither kidnap nor selling a dead body were capital offences. And that was their defence. They were saying they never killed him. Yeah, they might have kidnapped him, they might have sold his body, but they didn't murder him. So the court had to just say, no, you mm, did. Yeah. And then they hanged them for that, because for neither of their offences that they could prove, they could be hanged. And somebody asked me on the tour, were they ever dissected? And... I couldn't find any evidence of that. I don't think they were. I think they were both buried because Burke and Hare was the the last dramatic irony. So we've got these incidences of murdering to supply the medical school. But of course, there was a much bigger trade in simply digging up bodies and freshly buried corpses. Mm -hmm. And this is where these become known as the resurrection men. And there's this real commodification of death and and dead bodies. Mm. But then there was people got wise to it. People realised what was happening. They didn't want their relatives desecrated, that they just buried. So they came up with a number of sort of very canny options. Especially in Edinburgh. Mm. um, And Edinburgh actually invents some of these, doesn't it? Yeah, you get the first first appearances of some of these protection methods do come up in Edinburgh. What's actually really funny about all this, I say really funny, it's dark, but it is quite amusing, (laughs) is that the act of stealing a body is not, it, it wasn't actually an illegal act. What was illegal was taking the clothes as well. So if you if, if someone dug up a dead body, because no one can own a, a body, that's just not a possible thing, to steal a corpse without any of the belongings that came with it wasn't actually illegal. But as soon as you removed the clothes or something, they belonged to the deceased, and at that point you were breaking the law. I don't know the logic behind that, but it is. It, it was. <laughs> probably the... weren't expecting you to dig up dead bodies. Yeah, well, exactly. Probably wasn't put into place when that was I was like, happened. well, you might dig up the clothes, but not the body. So what actually happens is you start to see, as Kate mentioned, these rise of these methods of, of preventing body snatching. Carlton Hill Burial Ground, you get the new Carlton Hill Burial Tower, which is actually a grade B listed building. And it is... An... <laughs> Architectural knowledge coming into play, Carlton. <laughs> yes, it is beautiful. And it still stands to this day, you can visit it. It's a protected, as I said, protected building. And it, that was there just simply to try and kind of put people off so someone would be employed to I be believe in that it? they didn't necessarily employ someone to be in it, but they would light a candle in it. So people would just not like the idea of being watched. It's a very kind of Foucauldian prison idea. Like it's it's got a lot of deep sociological foundings. But the essential principle is is that if you're being watched, you're not going to try and break the law. I don't think it worked particularly well, but it might have done. But the much more tangible prevention method can be seen in Greyfriars Kirkyard now. And these were these things called mort safes, which would essentially just big metal cages that comprised of padlocks and metal bars that went over a fresh burial then they couldn't be removed and they were left on top of them for up to six weeks so until the body started to to decay at which point they would have been removed and put onto newer burials the whole principle being that as soon as a body starts to decay it's no longer of use to a medical student so they were just putting these on to really try and deter students or, or anyone from coming along and digging up these bodies and taking them off to the medical school and you can actually still see examples of those in Greyfriars Kirkyard to this day. So Burke and Hare is really the end point of all of this Mm. um, simply because it was there was so much scandal and it was communicated so widely that really it was the the turning point in actually clamping down on this trade and also people realising that everything had gone too far. Now how many did they kill in total? So they killed a number of people 
and then sold their bodies to medical school. What yes. sort of numbers are we talking? So it's anywhere between 10 and 30 people. It's broadly assumed that number sits somewhere near 20, but we don't actually have any official record because the only rec- sort of list that was ever made came as part of William Hare's confession, mm. so he pleaded King's evidence. And, and he went of, for 16, didn't he? Was that I the think, yeah, he went... Uh, 16 or 17, I think he names. But then there is also a suggestion that he murdered people without Burke knowing and sold their bodies onto the medical school as well. And all of those bodies, as far as we are aware, are sold on to uh, the assistants and students of Dr. Robert Knox at the surgeon's hall, at the surgeon's quarters. And eventually, after a, it's a 10 month long spree, they get caught. Yes, they do get caught. This is because they start to get a little bit messy, they get a bit lazy in their methods. They kidnap and murder a local homeless boy who a lot of people realise he goes missing on the streets and everything. Rather terrifyingly, it seems that Robert Knox decapitated the body before it went to a section in front of all these students for fear that they were going to recognise him. However, he didn't do that in the case of a young prostitute that Burke and Hare kidnapped and murdered. And rather bemusingly, when Robert Knox pulled the cloth off of her body in the dissection lab, a number of his students recognised her, uh, and it made me... I'm not sure that's amusing at all. <laughs> I, I think... It just says something about every student. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing has changed. <laughs> no, but... Well, probably shouldn't be throwing those accusations. No. I'm an Edinburgh student, it's fine. <laughs> Disclaimer. Not, not no. sure what you're trying to tell us right now. <laughs> I'm going to put my glasses on and move swiftly on. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, they start to get... People start to realise that they're messing up and eventually they hide a body in a big pile of hay in their guest house on the West Port and unsurprisingly someone finds it and turns them into the police. This is Margaret Doherty. Yeah, that that is, yeah. At that point they are arrested for it and all the kind of the pieces of the puzzle are put together. And as we said, William Hare actually pleads King's evidence and he gets off scot-free and leaves Ireland and William Burke takes the absolute brunt and he is capitally punished and then in the greatest twist or ironic twist in Edinburgh's history uh, William Burke is taken to the Edinburgh Anatomy School and is dissected for a very large crowd of people by Dr Alexander Munro. And what mm. I didn't realise is that both Burke and Hare actually had wives and both of their wives were heavily implicated in a lot of this yeah. and actually because Hare turns King's evidence his wife is also then removed from the mm. trial. Mm-hmm. But Burke's wife gets a verdict of not proven, which is this uniquely Scottish verdict, which basically means she did it, but we can't prove it. Yeah. And all three of those other players in this are chased by angry mobs at various points. Yeah, Because it's become time. such a scandal, and actually mm-hmm. we have no idea what happened to any of those. Well, none of them were actually officially married to these women either. They were they were all <laughs> common law marriages as far as I'm aware because it's believed, I think, that William Hur was actually married in was Ireland. He had another marriage I, in Hoffle, yeah. They have a lot of very loud shouting matches in the Edinburgh bars. They're being very like raucous. Aren't yeah, they? all like, four of them. Yeah. They get very, very angry. Very At various points, they, they pot to murder each other or they've got to do this that and the other none of it ever happens obviously but yeah so they, they actually had very few ties to each other and it seems we're very happy to tell on each other so the fact the three of them got off fairly lightly in comparison to Burke is in one case not surprising at all because they chose their weakest link and got rid of him 
And actually Burke's, so the story goes, that once Burke's been hanged and dissected, because it's become such a scandal, it's so popular that actually several bits of his body disappear. I think think, his his body does disappear in its entirety. Don't don't (laughs) they still have the skeleton in the University Anatomical Museum? Yes, they do. I thought that they stole his body and then it came back, but what might have happened is that they skinned him. As part of the um, dissection. Certainly the story goes that there is a book in Surgeon's Hall. I don't know where it currently is. I last it, saw it in the National Gallery, but I don't know if it is um, there. Which is bound in Burke's skin, right, mm, rather yeah. sort of macabre. I've heard about a twist. few others. I don't know if they've ever actually been proven as being Burke's snuffbox, I've just, heard of. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there are these sort of because because it's been splashed across all the tabloids yeah. and the newspapers, and everyone's been talking about it for weeks, and no one has any idea sort of what's truth, what's fact, what's mm-hmm. fiction anymore. It's become such a big thing that people want these these yeah. Yeah. mementos. Well, you know, it's dark tourism at its absolute finest. Yeah. You know? and they have actually they're still as infamous as they were. So I've been brought up on the story of Birkin here since I was in primary school. I am not from Edinburgh, I'm from Pennycook, which is a fair distance away from Edinburgh. But there is a graveyard there that was said to have had bodies stolen from by Birkin Hare. And apparently we've got a pub, an 18th century pub from, it's about 1760s, which was apparently frequented by Birkin Hare, which seems a very long way for them to go, yeah. to go it's to also, the pub. And they certainly they never in the 1820s. It, yeah, well, it's... An older pub than they are, but yeah, they yeah. were. Oh, sorry, yeah. I'm apparently, they, they were there. Yeah, yeah, apparently they drank or they drank in that pub, and it seems unlikely. <laughs> and <laughs> also because they never actually dug up any bodies, as far as we know. Yeah, that's obviously just something that it's been added in. Been added in as well. It's a good story. It's like, it's like the Harry Potter thing of Edinburgh cafes, isn't it? Yeah, they gotta yeah. have a claim on a bit of history. It was written in all of them. All, all of them. All of them. Every, Every cafe in Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> it is shocking how many different cafes she visited. And, of course, just sort of tidying up on the the Birkin hair, this actually had an impact going forward on what happens to bodies and bodies for medical science. Well, actually, I just read that shortly after, I think it was 1830 or 1831, just before the Anatomy Act, Mm. there were three men in London, known as the London Burkers, who were modelling murders on Birkin hair, selling those bodies to medical science, and it was kind of from them that mm. the anatomy act was absolutely yeah it was if you actually yeah the anatomy act of 1832 is passed in the wake of the burke and hare mm. scandal in the wake of london london especially was actually yeah, as yeah. just as alive with it as edinburgh was <laughs> alive we. Uh, <laughs> was just as rife with it as edinburgh was and it, the anatomy act is passed very much in actually public response as well to these bodies because the general population really really did frown upon it and didn't were so unhappy with the turn of events and the, the lack of action being taken against people who were involved in Birkenhead obviously but also like Robert Knox he wasn't punished at all so the Anatomy Act said that any body donated to medical science could be dissected and that was that was not a bad thing that was the choice of the person and that's no problem much like the plague, there was a, a direct response mm-hmm. and reaction yeah. that shaped the city and shaped the way that Absolutely. we do things. Yeah, it, it leads actually as well, which I only found out when researching this, to the opening of the medical school as part of Edinburgh University. So oh. before this, it was the Surgeon's Hall and Surgeon's Quarter, where mm-hmm. they were the anatomy school. That was what they were called. It was the Edinburgh Anatomy School. And then after the... in 
the Anatomy Act is passed, the university kind of takes hold of it and goes, no, we'll open it. And it becomes licensed medical professors employed by a university can take these bodies and do public dissections. So actually one of the things that leads to the downfall of Robert Knox is that he does not get a position on that faculty and he uh, is left sort of to his own devices. But he doesn't get... He doesn't actually stand trial in any way, even though no. it's blatantly obvious he knew yeah. what was going on. Oh, yeah, he yeah. his professional reputation is absolutely scarpered. He he has no credibility left. Um, <laughs> that's just scarpered is the word you get <laughs> No, maybe not. I said it, I was like, that's not right. Scuppered. Scuppered, is that the one? I was like, yeah. that's, then I thought that's not a real word. <laughs> I mean, it might not be. Hey, scuppered is real. Anyway, sorry. So, uh, yeah, in the wake of the Buck and Hare scandal, like, Robert Knox's reputation is totally destroyed he has no professional credibility whatsoever weirdly students still love him they're still trying to go to his lectures but he also loses this ability to dissect bodies because he hasn't got the license or the university behind him in the same way and he actually moves to london about 10 years later after he loses both his wife and his son in very quick succession and we don't really have a record of what happens to him after that right well, I think that probably is is a good a good chat on death. Thank you. Yeah. Cheery. Yeah, cheery. <laughs> Wednesday <it> afternoon. <laughs> One thing before you go, this season of the podcast, we are not going to do the dinner party, but we did we did think it was important that we did something. So we're going to have fact of the fortnight and we're going to ask whoever's guesting to tell us their favourite fact, whatever that may be. Yes, okay. <laughs> Off you go. So I've got a long think about this. <laughs> and I have this fact that I really want to be true, and I was told it by an academic, so I'm going to presume that it is true. But please do not quote me on this if it turns out to it's not be. It's a good be. story. So basically, in se- late 1700s, uh, you get the new town the commission for the edinburgh new town to be built and this is a contract that is won by a young architect called james craig he's 26 years old he does precisely this and then nothing else at all in his life (laughs) but he builds this very beautiful very simple grid iron dumbbell model for the edinburgh new town which if you've ever seen the edinburgh new town just two big squares at either end connected by three streets very simple he wins the contract and the Edinburgh City Council approve it, but it has to go to the monarch at the time to sort of give it the final okay. Monarch at the time is King George III, and King George III receives this plan, and he absolutely loves it, because James Craig, being the clever sausage that he is, has named (laughs) absolutely everything after the idea of the union, of the United Kingdom of Scotland and England. So the roads, you've got Prince's Street, George Street, Queen Street, you've got St Andrew's Square, obviously patron saint of Scotland. You have St George Square. It becomes a Charlotte Square, but patron Who saint of England. Who was George's wife? But, yeah, anyway. they name it after his wife. And then between sort of these big, these three main streets, you have uh, Rose Street and Thistle Street running very thin along the whole length of the new town. It is said that George III very again very much enjoyed this plan and he signed it off and said that's absolutely fine go ahead build your new town with the one condition that thistle street is made shorter than rose street because scotland is smaller than england (laughs) so if you visit the new town now you can walk from charlotte square to st andrew square along rose street and it's rose street the whole way around but if you try and then walk back along what is thistle street you will walk along thistle street and hill street and young street because it's divided into three so yeah that's my favourite that is is good good. 
Good fact. I'm gonna have to start feeling. I feel like we're we're gonna have to contribute ours at some point, Holly. But we yes. probably got a little bit more running. So, <laughs> really <well>. hard. <laughs> well, you know, we're here, we're here to do that. Uh, well, thank you very much, Casey, for coming on the show. Yes, thank Not you at all. Not at all. And really I think that's it. probably a good place for us to wrap up today's episode as well. Since this is the first in the series, we don't have any of your emails or any of your correspondence please but send them in as you know we are always here to answer your questions and we'll be returning to that format in later episodes you can contact us on gladstonsland at nts.org.uk that's also on our website so if you need to go and look it up it's there do drop us an email with the subject line saying something like the podcast on it if you do have any questions and we will, we will do our best to answer them. Yes. You can also contact us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. We mm-hmm. are at Gladstonsland on all three. Yes, and Holly is in charge of the Facebook, so that is a really good place <laughs> to am. go. Go to the Facebook. <laughs> so do get in touch with us and any comments and feedback as well. We always welcome that. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed it, let other people know. As Thomas would say, pass the pod. <laughs> so thanks from... From me, Holly. From me, Cosie. And from me, Kate. <laughs>